Well, hello, CMYK community, and welcome. This is a CMYK talk podcast, so I hope this is the one you clicked on, because that's what you're getting over the next few minutes. My name is Matt, and this is a talk podcast that comes out of and is a part of this thing known as CMYK. We're a community in Billings, Montana, that's driven uh, to find this more holistic kind of life and joy, a more beautiful way to interact with the world, people, and stuff around us. And I'm so glad and honored that you would choose to spend the next few moments listening in and being a part of these conversations and a part of this work that we think is so important and that matters in this world. Today, I'm, I'm just uh, a little giddy, a little appreh- apprehensive, maybe a little nervous, uh, but ultimately very excited about uh, where we're headed. We're jumping into a new series today that we're entitling Roots, Branches, and Fruit, or How Christianity Grew into What It Is Today. I don't know about you, but we live in a world that uh, this idea of being a Christian can mean a whole bunch of different things, and we live in a pretty polarized culture right now, even around this idea of Christianity and what it means to be a follower of Christ and how you're to live and interact with people, how do you to vote and how you're to spend your money and time and energy, these kinds of things. It can mean so much, and many times I've found myself over the just this last season of time when it comes to this idea of being a Christian or a follower of Christ or looking at this idea of church and how people are choosing to come together and form themselves in communities that they call churches, uh, just wondering, how did we get here? Because obviously, as you probably know, Christianity is this thing that has deep roots. It's it's not anything really new uh, in our culture. Christianity's been around a long time, a couple thousand years, and there's even roots that go couple thousand years before that. And so this is a deep, deep uh, thing that we're tapping into. But obviously, the church, particularly the church here in America, it's got some <laughs> weird intricacies that, that it can have to it. That it can be a little funky at times. You can wonder, like, how, how did this be? Why is this a thing? And how did it become a thing? And how did it get to be the thing that it is today? And to be so divisive and so uh, out of left field at times, and yet at the same moment, it can be this really beautiful, resonant thing that we're connecting with, and all all of that. And how can someone call themselves a Christian and act and live like that? And someone that calls themselves a Christian acts and lives a completely different way. How did we get here? And so this is a a unique series because we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the roots of Christianity. We're going to talk about what it grew into in these kind of bigger branches that kind of sprouted off out of the roots of Christianity, and then talk about the fruit, both good and bad, of, okay, so there's some good things that have come out of this, but there's also some bad things that have come out of this history of Christianity as well. And so let's just try to deal with that. And I'm apprehensive and nervous about this because as good as I think it's going to be, this is a huge topic, and I by no means sit here today to tell you I am the end-all expert on all of these things, but I've spent a lot of my life and energy around these things, so I want to do my best to try to encapsulate and in a succinct way talk about this giant thing known as Christianity in the church and over the next few weeks, try to bring us to a place that maybe for you, I know for me, it's been helpful to understand, oh, that's kind of why we are where we are today, and that's why there's this good fruit, and that's why there's these bad fruits, because this thing has some roots to it, 
This thing has grown into some pretty significant branches on some things and ideas, and then there's some fruit that's out of it. So that's where we're going over the next few weeks, roots, branches, and fruits. And to kick things off, if we're going to talk about this thing called Christianity, right at the beginning of that word of Christianity is this word Christ. And you may know already that there's a central figure that really kicked so much of this off, the person of Jesus Christ and the stories and life and history of who he was, what he did, and more importantly, the roots of how the first followers of this man, this way of Christ, responded to his life. So again, incredibly succinct, trying to wrap this up as quickly as possible because we got places to go and things to do and all of that stuff. So this is not a four-hour talk like it probably could be, if we're honest, to do it justice, but to just talk about the story of Christ and the roots that were planted in his life and teaching. The story goes like this. When you look at any of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John within the New Testament, we see that there's this story of a man, Jesus, showing up. And he's this new kind of teacher. They would use the word rabbi within the Jewish tradition. Jesus is a new kind of rabbi. And through his teaching and through his actions, and then because of some miracles that are told of, he starts to grow a following of people. So he's not just this flying solo kind of guy. He's got a group of people that are following this new way of teaching and life. And it begins to grow to a point where he's actually killed because of his teaching. He's taken out and taken down by those in power, those, the religious people around him that don't like this new way of growing about things. And so he's crucified on a cross. This is in the early AD years. But the story doesn't end there, that he's not just a martyr that dies for this new way. He rises from the dead. And then as the story goes in the Gospels, he doesn't just rise from the dead and then he lives happily ever after, but there is this moment where he ascends to heaven. And this is significant because then all of a sudden, he gone. Jesus is no more on planet earth in this physical flesh and blood kind of form that everybody had become accustomed to. So then, because Christ is gone, but he left this new way of teaching in this, this story of who he was and his death and resurrection, because of that, his followers take up his teachings, take up this life, this death and resurrection, and choose to start to gather, talk about, celebrate, and wrestle with what this now means in their interactions with one another, in their interactions with the divine. And one of the strongest roots that we see is not just the teachings of Christ, but revolves around that final piece of his life, the final piece of all four Gospels. It's his death and resurrection. There's something about this that grew deep within what these communities, these churches were about and what they chose to talk about. And so this first route that we got to really address is just simply death and resurrection. Why is this such a big deal, and how did this help uh, the church and our culture grow into what it is today, and what were the branches that came out of this kind of story? And it's important to note, this idea of death, death and resurrection, it, it didn't happen in a vacuum. It's not just something that took place on this singular uh, moment in planet Earth, and no time before that had anybody talked about or wrestled with this idea of death and resurrection, because it comes out of this thing known as sacrifice. 
Imagine a world where the divine, God, or the gods are influencing everything. We, we don't have to go too far back into human history for, for us to see that there would be a strong standard of humanity, that there is a divine influence on the world, and that everything that happens is happening because God or the gods are choosing to influence to happen that way. So there's good days and there's bad days, and directly connected to how those good days and bad days are going is this God who's pulling the strings and has control over everything. But more than just good and bad days, it's literally life and death that hangs in the balance of how these gods or God is choosing to interact with people. Because when you look at the idea of rain and how your crops are doing, this was influenced because humanity had not yet understood the way that weather patterns and the way that the ecosystem on planet Earth works. And so because of that, there was so much conversation about the fact that it's a dry season, we're not getting rain. It must be because the gods are angry and they're choosing to punish us of, punish us for things. The way your crops would grow, the way your health would be within your body or within your family. Victories in battle were not found just because there was a smarter, better, braver group of people that were able to overcome the weaker ones. No, victories came because the gods had ordained it, and they were the ones pulling the strings. The way your relationships were interacting with one another were because of how the gods were choosing to influence things. Everything in your life came down to how the divine was playing with all the chess pieces of of humanity. And so when things weren't going well, you had to figure out how to appease or please the gods because you wanted the gods to be on your side, right? And so you would find without, with, throughout many different traditions and many different faiths on many different pla- places on planet Earth, throughout human history, these different ways that humanity has worked to appease the gods and try to make sure that they're on our side. So if we go into battle, battle you're going to be with us, right? You're going to help us take down this other side, right? Because, and so to help appease the gods, they would have to figure out, okay, what's something of value that I can give to these gods. These are things that we still do in humanity today. It's like birthday parties where you try to figure out how can I show this person how much I love them and make sure that they love me in return. So I'm going to buy them a really nice present. I'm not just going to buy them a fidget spinner, as cool as that might be. I'm going to buy something really nice, like a brand new 50-inch TV. Look how much I love you. And it's the amount of sacrifice that you bring in that gift that shows how devoted, committed you are to that relationship. And this is human history, that we bring that to the divine interactions in the world, that we try to figure out how can I sacrifice more and more and more to make sure that the gods or God knows how committed and devoted I am to them, that they in turn will have the rain come on my crops and the sun shine on my fields and bring health to my family and allow me to win when conflict comes. And this is what we find within the tradition, the faith of Judaism. Jesus was a good Jewish man. And growing up within this tradition, we know that a part of his life and a part of his culture was sacrifice. And the Old Testament of the Bible is this Jewish text that's filled with all of these commandments and invitations to continually bring sacrifice to God. And you would literally kill things of value like an animal, a goat, a sheep, a calf. 
and you would let blood pour out on the altar as a testament to see how much I'm giving you. That God would know I'm for you. And that God, in turn, would be for that people group. And on top of that, that the people around you would know, I'm committed to this God as well. And you're showing your commitment and significance within that community by the grandiose sacrifices and offerings that you're bringing. It's the idea that God is found on your side. God is for, found with you and for you because of the sacrifice that you are bringing. And the things of value, remember, are things that have literal flesh and blood. There's other sacrifices of grain offerings. There's other sacrifices of wine and these kinds of things. But at the core, the most significant and sacred seem to always revolve around this flesh and blood sacrifice of here's a calf, here's a lamb, here's a goat. And this is showing my commitment. It's into this culture that Jesus inserts himself. It's into this culture that there is this narrative in this story of Christ sacrificing not a goat, not a lamb, but himself. And the blood that's poured out is not the blood of a goat or a lamb or a calf. It's the blood of Christ himself. It's this death that's brought And out of that death is this new life. You see, Jesus, from the very beginning, continues to communicate within his stories. And then what we see this root of Christianity pick up on is the idea that Christ is not just giving his life for nothing, but he's giving his life as the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. In other words, where there's been this thousand-year history of appeasing God through these kind of ritualistic sacrifice gifts and offerings, Jesus shows up and said, and here's one to end them all. And Rather than a calf or a goat or a lamb, I'm going to bring my life to this story and this narrative that you would know that God is appeased. God is on your side. God is for you and with you. Can you see why this idea of death and resurrection became such a strong root within the church to grow it into what it is today? Because it was a dramatic impact and shift for how they were interacting with God. In fact, we find writings from the first followers of Christ throughout the whole New Testament that are wrestling with this sacrifice of Christ and what it means. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 10, starting in verse 10, he says this, And by that will, Christ's will and God's will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And there's some strong imagery here. And every priest that stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single 
offering. He has perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. This is some strong mic-dropping language that the writer of Hebrews is bringing. He's saying there are priests that are standing daily offering these sacrifices repeatedly over and over and over and over again, and they're doing nothing. Why? Because Christ offered himself once and for all, and this was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. There's this image that he uses that he says that Christ sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, Christ is sitting down, like the act has been done. There's nothing more. There's no other sacrifice. There's no other appeasement. There's no other work that can be done to make things right between God and humanity. And so where there's this entire history of humanity throughout all different religions and all different races and all different times within history of us working to try and appease some kind of God or gods or the divine, for us to try and deal with some kind of guilt or shame that we carry for what we've done, for us to try and play the cards right and make sure that God is on our side, Christ has ended that conversation and said, okay, it's done. If you feel like something needs to die, if you feel like something needs to be given, a big gift, a big gesture to show that God is on your side and that you can sleep at night knowing that to be true, here it is. Christ gave himself once for all, and there's nothing left to do. Nothing, not one thing can be done. This is the root of Christianity, a history filled with humanity and a a life still filled with humanity, trying to appease God and make sure that he's on your side. This story says it's already been done. He's sitting down. He's not getting up because it's already accomplished. So breathe deep and know that God is for you, with you, and on your side. There's an image here that can get really silly really quickly. You see, in the early 2000s, I, I lived my life a certain way. I, I was single and ready to mingle. <laughs> I was a young pubescent boy, and I found myself continually aware of any pretty girl that was in the room always apprehensive of how I was being viewed, particularly by the women, the girls around me, because I wanted to be attractive, and I wanted to do things that were funny. I wanted to do things that would get their attention, and that maybe, just maybe, I would be able to date or find myself in relationship with one of them, with the goal that I would be able to find myself in some kind of long-term, committed, significant, loving relationship. This was the goal. And so I lived my life always aware of any time there was a girl in the room and any time a girl would look at me or, I mean, guys, let's just be honest, talk to me or just recognize my existence. There's this part of me that would always in the back of my mind go, hmm, I wonder, maybe she, she'd she want to go out with me. Oh, she laughed at my joke. Maybe she'll want to go out with me. Oh, she knows my name. <laughs> maybe she'll want to go out with me. That girl in Spanish class. Oh, yep. She definitely wants to go out with me. Why? Because... I said a nice Spanish phrase to her, hola, amiga, and now 
maybe, just maybe, I'll be able to be in relationship with her. I had this end goal of working to be in relationship. It's called puberty. It's called adolescence. It's called being single, even into adulthood. Many of us know what that's like to continually be in this place of trying to find this goal. But something happened. In 2006, I found myself on a platform with five of my closest friends standing there with me. And on the other side of the platform stood this woman. And her and I walked through these vows, this ceremony that was a commitment to one another to say, you are the person that I want to spend the rest of my life with. You are the person that I'm committing to. I and I committed on that day, May 20th, 2006, to Kate Betcher, and she committed to me, Matt Blakesley. And that was this transitional, transformational moment for my life that I found myself out of this single game of always being concerned and always being aware of all the single ladies, and all of a sudden seeing that that part of my life was now to be found fulfilled in this relationship with my wife. I think as we all know, what happened on that day in 2006 was meant to change the way that I interacted with the world, and that I would no longer find myself in these situations, whether it was a Spanish class or whether it was me just hanging out with a room full of people, that I was no longer concerned or worried about all the other women in the room and how they were viewing me because I had found and I had stepped into this relationship of marriage. And so the way that I, I chose to live was now different. The way that I chose to carry myself around others was now different. The way that I saw myself, rather than being someone that was single and maybe not okay with that, it was now different because this act had been done. It's the same idea, picture, and image that we find with this work of Christ. The act has been done. There's nothing left to do. So now you get to start living differently and uniquely and beautifully in the world and not carry this kind of anxiety and worry about what do I have to do to make things right. I don't have to carry that worry and anxiety about Matt Blakesley and how I'm looking and how I'm acting around other single women because all of a sudden I'm good. I've got it. I found it. And the crazy, goofy image that comes out of this for me is it would be ridiculous for me to start living again as if I was single, to start entering into rooms and and noticing and recognizing the single ladies in, in the room and being concerned with how they viewed me, to start to live like I've got to try and be this attractive kind of individual to the other women in the room. Because I've already found it. I've already made this decision and commitment to this woman. So it's not right for me to live like I didn't stand on a platform in 2006 and make this kind of commitment. And it's the most ridiculous thing in the world to think that God is not appeased and there's more still to be done. Because this act, this death and resurrection of Christ has solved that, ended that narrative and dialogue once and for all. And so I can't find myself always worried about how I'm viewed by the opposite sex. And I can't find myself worried all the time about how God is viewing and seeing me. It's a reshaping 
of so much of human history in this moment. And so this root of Christianity are groups of people that are choosing to say, yeah, it's done. And we can stop this conversation. We can stop this life of trying to appease, trying to figure out and find some kind of sacrifice to make everything better with God because everything is okay with the divine. So we can move on and we can start to think about, focus on, and spend our lives on different things. And so this is the root. But just like any kind of plant, anything that's put in the ground and starts to grow, we see that there's a potential for good fruit to come from that thing, and we see that there's potential for bad fruit to come from that thing. And I think just in my own history, research, and understanding, there's some really interesting bad fruit that can start to grow out of this monumental shift of human history with this death and resurrection, because it's huge, and it changes everything. But there can be this tendency, I think, and I see, for bad fruit to be found in the way that we continue to highlight, emphasize, and bring so much significance to it over and over and over and over again. Here's what I mean. I got married in 2006, and weddings and a marriage, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's why you spend so much money, time, and energy on this thing, because it's like a, a, a big deal, right? And there's this tendency that you get married and there's like this honeymoon period of time where you keep talking about and remembering, oh, remember the wedding day? Remember who was there? Remember how awesome that was? Remember our vows? Remember the songs and the poems or whatever it was that was a part of this ceremony? It's good and it's beautiful. But at some point, the marriage moves away from that wedding day and begins to continue to grow and move forward in a relationship. And you grow and evolve and change as a couple doing life together. And it's not a healthy marriage and it's not a healthy relationship that continues to regularly, on a weekly basis, if you will, talk about, oh, Remember the wedding? It was so beautiful. Remember that dress? Oh, it was just gorgeous. Remember you, you actually wore a tie and tucked in your shirt? Oh, that was nice. Remember the songs? And that's all you have to relate around in your relationship. That's the only thing that you can talk about in your married life is how awesome your wedding was and how big and amazing everything is, that you regularly just on a daily basis, pull out these pictures and look at your wedding day and reminisce and, oh, that was so great, oh, that was so great, that there would be this regular thing of trying to get back to that moment and saying, okay, we're going to do another wedding, and then we're going to do another wedding, and then we're going to do another (laughs) wedding, and we're going to continue to spend all this money, and we're going to continue to invite all our friends, and we're going to do wedding after wedding after wedding after wedding. It's this thing that everybody in the room that maybe might show up to two or three weddings, yes, because they really love you, after a period of time they go, okay, now just go be married. Like, stop focusing on the wedding. Stop focusing on the ceremony. That was supposed to be the start, the launching point of something really beautiful, and that's this married relationship that gets to continue to grow and evolve and become something truly beautiful. 
There's this tendency within Christianity, because this is such a huge, strong root for us, this death and resurrection, this sacrifice once for all, for us to continue to come back to this act over and over and over and over again. And for many of us, you might know what it's like to live your following of Christ in such a way that the only thing that you talk about and the only thing that you revolve it around is this huge, significant act of Christ's death on a cross. It's big. Yes, you should talk about it. Yes, but there is this design and this purpose of this sacrifice for it to shift the way that you interact in the world and that we would now begin to be able to focus on, talk about, and spend our lives on different things because God is appeased and we are forgiven. And so now we can move on and we can move forward and we can see our lives driven for other kinds of things because we no longer have to talk about and deal with this element. I don't have to in my relationship with with Kate continue to worry about, okay, the wedding was awesome, but was that the peak? And I have to keep coming back to the wedding and create more and bigger ceremonies and bigger weddings because maybe it didn't stick. No, I trust and believe that something significant happened there so I can move on. And this sacrifice of Christ is an invitation to say, okay, it's done. We can move on. And I trust that this narrative, this story, this act was everything that was needed. So now we can move forward. You see, what I see happen is we become so driven and centered around this death and resurrection. And it's all the songs that we sing. It's all the conversations that we have. It's all the emotion that we have. That it feels like Christianity isn't working if we're not continuing to just focus 110% on this. Many of us know what it's like that to follow Christ is just an invitation to continually feel guilty for the things that you've done and to like to hyper-emotionalize this thing with the songs that you sing and the talks that are given and all these things where we just are in this continual place of, do you feel guilty? Yes. Well, here's the sacrifice of Christ. Okay, good. Whew. And then we come back a week later. Do you feel guilty? Yes. Okay, here's the sacrifice of Christ. Whew. Okay, good. And we're never actually moving on. We're never actually trusting that it's done and Christ has sat down. We just keep coming back to it like it didn't stick the first time. This is some bad fruit because we're not actually moving on and seeing this beautiful growth of this relationship and invitation into life with the divine that I think all of this was meant to be. And we live in fear. We're a part of systems and establishments that can easily control others. Because it's easier to manipulate people if you feel guilty all the time. And so we just continue to revolve around that. It's easier to get people to give money and finances and energy to something if there's this guilt and the shame and this sacrifice that you've got to sacrifice and appease God and be okay. So come and give here and everything will be better. It's bad fruit. Because there's the good fruit that we were supposed to find. And the good fruit is this. The sacrificial system is gone. It's defunct. It's no longer a part of our lives. So this means the ways that you feel like you're lacking, the thing that might be a part of your humanity that can be a part of all of our humanities at moments, of feeling like you're disqualified, that you've done too much, you've gone too far, 
you've thought those things. And so now you've got to figure out ways to make up for that. You got to figure out things that you can give up and sacrifice on some kind of altar, some kind of gift that you can give time, energy, money, emotion, and that will appease God or make him more happy with you. This system is gone. And this picture in Hebrews is yeah, you can spend your life on that like these priests would, but they're just doing this useless act because it's been done once and for all. So the good fruit is, let's set this sacrificial system down and let's move on. The story matters and the story is significant, but it's meant to change and shift things for us, just like a wedding matters and a wedding is significant, but it's meant to change and shift things, not get us centered and focused on that act over and over and over again. We can pick our heads up off of ourselves, our guilt and our shame that you might carry, the disqualifying nature that you would bring to yourself and say, nope, God is appeased and he has spoken his love and embrace to me in this act, in this story. And so now I get to see others. I get to spend my life for those around me, the outsiders, and give my life for those in need around me. This is good fruit. And there's another piece of good fruit here as well. And this one's a big one for me. Because the minute we get to move on from the narrative of guilt and shame, because the act has already been done and accomplished, we get to become observers of our failings rather than carriers of guilt and shame for our failings. Because what I know about me and what I've seen in people around is when we feel guilty and shameful about what we've done and we feel like we've got to appease it, we have this tendency to hide and we have these tendencies to play games and try to pretend and try to you know, make sure that people see us for maybe something that we know that we're not. But the minute we know that the sacrifice has been done and we're good and there's nothing more that can be done and we're moving on from that, when we fall, when we make a mistake, when we do something that would cause this guilt and shame to come up, rather than running back to trying to say, okay, now what do I got to do to appease God because I screwed up again? All of a sudden, we get to simply be observers of it and we get to talk about it. We get to point at it and we get to go, man, I keep coming back to this stuff. I keep falling. I keep screwing up. I keep doing these things that I wish I would stop doing. I keep saying these things. I keep carrying, carrying guilt or greed. I keep carrying some, so much anger. I keep carrying so much lust, whatever it is. And we get to talk about it in a way that we're not trying to hide. We're not trying to pretend. We're not trying to play a game. We just get to be honest about it because we know it's already been paid for, if you will. We know that it's already done and accomplished, so there's nothing more that can be done other than us just sitting around and becoming observers and having honest conversations about, yeah, I get really angry. Why? Well, man, that's fascinating. We get to talk about it, and then we actually get to see ourselves grow and evolve and progress, and maybe these things that we wish we could be done with, we can start talking about true, honest, tangible ways that we can actually be done with them because we're observing the reality of where we are rather than being focused on or driven by the guilt and shame that we carry. You see why this is so huge? And you see why the Christian story has these roots that is carried for thousands and thousands and thousands of years? 
Because for many of us, we know what it's like to disqualify ourselves and to carry guilt and shame and to find our lives just centered on this sacrificial system. It's not calves and lambs. It's all the other things, time, energy, money, emotion that we try to bring to these altars. And Christ, the divine, I believe, is inviting us to move on from that. And I know for some of us, there can be this response to a talk like this. Like, man, if death and resurrection is such a big deal, man, it, se- man, it seems like you're kind of making a, a small deal of it. It's actually like you're belittling it by saying, move on already. But here's what I believe. I think that we're actually making a big deal of it when we move on from it because we actually believe that it stuck and we actually believe that it mattered and we actually begin to grow and progress and become the people that we were invited to be and we're invited to interact with this world on a more beautiful way that our lives are significant and we are not disqualified but we're actually embraced. This actually makes a bigger deal of the death and resurrection of Christ, I believe, if and when we believe it to be done and we move on from it rather than centering everything about our lives and spirituality around it. So yes, we talk about it. Because yes, there are weddings that happen all over the place. People that are engaging in this thing called marriage again and again and again and again and generation after generation after generation. Okay, yes, it's beautiful. And there are people that continue to engage in this death and resurrection and set down the sacrificial system again and again and again. So just like a wedding, we celebrate it, we talk about it, we get so excited about it, but then we invite those people and ourselves to continually move on from it and begin to see the beauty of this relationship, of the embrace of the divine. I love you, and I hope that you know how significant and important this is, that you are good. You are loved and you are embraced by the divine. And you can set down that sacrificial system that you're living in trying to appease some kind of God. And you can become an observer of what's really going on in your life and start to talk about it and engage community with others around it and begin to see your life focused on those in need around you. This is good work and good fruit. If there's anything we can do for you, please let us know. We'll be back next week. We'll talk about root number two.